If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, beginning at verse 19 and reading through chapter 5, verse 9. This is our scripture reading this morning. In Joshua 4, verses 19 to chapter 5, verse 9. And then our sermon passage is taken, of course, from 1 Samuel chapter 11. We'll be reading all of chapter 11, verses 1 to 15 today. Our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 15. Brothers and sisters, I remind you, as I try always to do, that this is the very word of God you are about to hear. And all of God's creatures, especially those who are created in the image of God, are duty-bound to give ear unto the Lord when he speaks. But especially those who have been redeemed, especially those who have been caused to be born again, we of all people ought to give our full attention to the Lord. So please do so now, because it is God's word that is being read. Joshua 4, beginning at verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel." At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haaraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the day that they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. 
But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Then he mustered them at Bezek. The people of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together." Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilead, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the way in which you delivered your people. For the way in which you delivered your people into the promised land and the way that you delivered your people from the hand of their enemies. Lord, we pray that you would remind us, as your word is now preached, that you not only are the author of all Scripture, that it all is breathed out by you, but that you also are the primary subject of all Scripture. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us about you, as your word is preached, that you would teach us of your mighty works in saving your people. And so we ask, O Lord, for the illuminating power of your spirit, that he would guide us, that he would help us to understand your word, and that you would be glorified in our midst, that we would worship you even as your word is preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it would not be accurate to describe the beginning of Saul's reign over Israel as a particularly auspicious one. You remember that at the gathering of all Israel at Mitzpah, when they were divided by tribe, and within each tribe they were divided by thousands, and within each thousand they were divided by families, Saul drew lots. 
And when the final, final lot fell on Saul, Saul was no, nowhere to be found. The people searched for him, and Samuel inquired of the Lord, and it was God himself who pointed out that the man who would be their king was hiding among the suitcases, that he was in with the supplies, that he did not want to be located. And so probably as a result of this, some of the people refused to pay homage or any kind of tribute to their new king. The fact was that not all Israel accepted Saul as their king. Most did. Most people celebrated the fact that after years of waiting, they finally had a king. But some of the people refused to do so. There was still a small minority that held its, withheld its support from the Lord's anointed. But despite the way that things began for Saul as king, chapter 11 marks a turn for the better. We've just read it, obviously, but a quick summary is that Saul leads Israel into its first battle since he became king, and they, with Saul at their head, defeat the Ammonites, after which all Israel went up to Gilgal and renewed the kingdom, and they made Saul king before Yahweh. Now, in some ways, perhaps many, chapter 11 marks the high point of Saul's career as king. It's almost all downhill from here after chapter 11. He enjoys this clear and decisive victory over a major enemy of Israel. But in the very next chapter, Saul is going to commit the sin for which the Lord will reject him. The Lord is going to reject his household. He offered this unlawful sacrifice instead of waiting patiently for Samuel to arrive. But for now, in chapter 11, Saul begins his reign with a victory over Israel's enemies. And in so doing, he briefly serves as a type for the king who would reign victoriously, not for a moment, not for a mere chapter of the Bible, but for all eternity. As we make our way through the sermon today, I would ask you to consider this thought, this proposition, Saul's victory over the enemies of God's people and the grace that he shows to those who opposed him point to Christ, whose victory and grace are unlimited. I'll say that again. Saul's victory over the enemies of God's people and the grace that he shows to those who opposed him point to Christ, whose victory and grace are unlimited. The sermon is divided into four points today, believe it or not. Deviated from the norm, four points. The first point, terrible terms. The second point, the dread of the divine. The third point, struck and scattered. And the fourth point, grace at Gilgal. No doubt the alliteration uh, there in those four points will make some of you happy and will drive others of you slightly insane. The first point again, terrible terms. The second point, the dread of the divine. The third point, struck and scattered. And the fourth, grace at Gilgal. So let's begin our sermon today with this first point, the terrible terms. Verse 1 in its brevity disguises the horror that it describes. We read there, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. To be under siege was a terrifying experience in the ancient world. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, a chapter that would caution you not to say you shouldn't read it, but to do so advisedly, advisedly. it is gruesome. It is very difficult uh, to to get through if you're reading it uh, consciously. 
And in that chapter, in verses 52 and 53, God describes a siege. And he tells Israel that though their cities are surrounded by great walls in which the people have trusted, the enemy nations will make it impossible for them to get food from outside their walled cities. And he says that they will become so desperate for food that they will resort to eating the flesh of your womb in order to survive. I'll leave it to you to understand what is being talked about there. Being under siege was no minor thing. It was, it was a big deal. It was a very serious matter. The force that has surrounded Jabesh Gilead is great enough in strength that verse 1 says that all of the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Wisely, these men of Jabesh don't try to fight right away. They don't try to go out in force and, and eliminate the threat. Instead, they ask for terms of a treaty. But the terms that they are offered are horrific. Verse 2 says, But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Now, Nahash here doesn't even try to disguise the fact that his main purpose is to disgrace not only Jabesh Gilead, but all Israel. He's offering them terms of a treaty that are intended to grind them down. As one commentator puts it, he wants to be more than liege lord of the new servants. He wants the sadistic pleasure of a surrender with mutilation. And with this measure, he wants to put all Israel to shame. Now, there is the, the military aspect of this. Gouging out their right eyes would make the men of Jabesh unfit for military service because soldiers' left eyes were usually covered by a shield in combat. And so they would be completely thrown off in their ability to, to uh, carry out defensive and offensive uh, uh, activities. But the primary purpose, as we've seen, was to humiliate all of Israel. But they also wished to demoralize all Israel with the terms of this treaty. Well, in verse 3, the elders of Jabesh-Gilead ask for seven days respite for the purpose, as they surprisingly tell the Ammonites, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Now, it's surprising that the Israelites of Jabesh-Gilead would make such an audacious request, and it's just as surprising that the Ammonites grant it. Nahash is confident but he's done the math, too, and he knows that he can afford to be magnanimous with them. Jabesh Gilead's elders have asked for seven days, but the, the city lay to the east of the Jordan River, most likely in the tribal lands of East Manasseh. It would take half of the seven days for the messengers that were sent out to reach their destination, and it would be crazy to think that Israel could muster an army and advance on the Ammonites encircling Jabesh Gilead before the seven-day time limit had expired. What's more, Saul, who the Ammonites likely didn't know about as king, he was untested, completely untested as the commander-in-chief. And Israel's forces were scattered throughout the Promised Land. So Nahash probably thinks that seven days the, the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead wait under siege only to find out that no help is coming will serve to weaken them for the enforcement of the terms of the treaty. But the people of Jabesh-Gilead know that there is now a king in Israel one whom the Lord himself had said would save his people from their enemies. And that takes us to the second point of the sermon, point number two, the dread of the divine. Verse, verse four says, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. 
Remember that Gibeah was in the land of Benjamin, just to the north of Jerusalem, which was just inside the border of Judah. And, and, and the border of Judah uh, uh, began at the, uh, the northern side of, of Jerusalem and extended all the way to the south, uh, at the very bottom of uh, the, the promised land. Gibeah was about 35 miles to the southwest of Jabesh-Gilead as the crow flies. And so if the messengers were traveling by foot, which most likely they were, it would take them about two days to make the journey. And though the elders of Jabesh told the Ammonites that they wanted to send messengers throughout Israel, in reality, all of the messengers went straight to the city of Israel's king. The people of Gibeah were greatly distressed at the news that the messengers brought. And verse 5 says that when Saul was returning to the city, he'd been out in the fields. He was a farmer after all. He was uh, behind a, a pair of, or, or at least a, a set of oxen. Uh, he heard the crying and he asked what was going on. And after the messengers told him, verse 6 says, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And this verse, coupled with verse 7, makes it very clear that what is about to happen is the result of God's power manifesting itself in the coming battle. And so in this way, there is little difference between Israel's battle with the Ammonites in this passage and Israel's battle against Jericho, where it was very clear that the power of God brought the walls of Jericho tumbling down. It is the power of God's Spirit that will lead Israel into battle. Saul, we read, is filled with holy rage, righteous anger. Verse 7 says he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of Yahweh fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. The cutting up of the oxen, which seems gruesome to us, it sent a very clear message to all the people of Israel. This is serious. This is your time. You must follow me into battle. The king of Israel was calling his army together to go into battle, and they came out as one man, we read there in verse 7. One man to fight. Now, I don't think that I personally had ever heard the phrase, hurry up and wait, before I joined the military. But it was the single most uttered phrase, at least that can be spoken from a pulpit, that I remember hearing in my four years of enlistment. And that's especially the case for those who are in the infantry. Now, we used to brag as infantrymen that we were the tip of the spear. We used to brag that every Marine who wasn't in the infantry was just support staff. But the truth was that we were always at the mercy of those who supplied our gear. We were at the mercies of those who gave us our meals. We were at the mercy of those who transported ourselves, uh, the Marines, around and as advanced as the U.S. military is, and most modern militaries in comparison to those of ancient times, as advanced as they are, it can still take time to pull the forces together to go into battle when you're caught off guard. Some of you, a good number of you, were alive when the attacks on 9-11 happened. But not all. And if you're like me, the memories of the details are somewhat uh, blurry but you may remember that though the authorization for the use of military force against terrorists was made into law on September 14, 2001, following those attacks on 9-11, the invasion of Afghanistan officially began on October 7, 2001. 
three weeks later. And that was not the ground invasion. That was airstrikes. It's relatively easy to get, to get birds in the air dropping bombs. The first ground forces, which were special operations, Green Berets and Army Rangers, they didn't arrive until October 18th. Now, all of this is being stated to illustrate just how difficult it is, even for the most powerful, the most advanced military in the world, to enter a war. Saul had less than seven days. And humanly speaking, the task before him was impossible. But we read there that the Spirit of God had rushed upon him and the dread of the Lord had fallen upon the people and they came out not as a bunch of dis different disparate forces, militias from all over the various territories of, of Israel. They came out as a unit. They came out as one. Perhaps 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 7 is where the U.S. Army slogan of an army of one came from. Verse 8 says that Saul mustered the people at Bezek. Israel, referring to the ten tribes other than Judah and Simeon, sent 300,000 men. 300,000 men they were able to muster in a very short amount of time. Judah and, and Simeon, whose tribe, the tribe whose boundaries were within Judah to the south of Jerusalem, sent 30,000 troops. Now, it's nearly impossible to get a family of five prepped and ready for a road trip in less than seven days. Saul, by the power of God, gathered together a force of 330,000 men on foot. And in verse 9, they gave instructions to the messengers who first brought the news of Jabesh Gilead's situation. Not Saul here, but the people who are as one man sent the messengers back with a message for Jabesh. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall see salvation. And when the men of Jabesh Gilead heard these words, verse 9 says they were glad. The task before Saul had been impossible, at least from a human standpoint. But the Spirit of the Lord had rushed upon Saul, and the people of the Lord had been filled with a divine dread. The human constraints, all of the impediments, the dragging of feet, the complaining, the fear, the human limits when people are put under stress, the difficult logistics of moving an army had been erased or at least eased. And the army of Israel under her king came together for war in record time. That brings us to the third point of the sermon, struck and scattered. The description of the battle against the Ammonites takes up the space of one single verse. The narrator of this account, the, the author of the book of 1 Samuel, is not interested in all of the gory details, much to the dismay of teenage boys everywhere. We don't get into the gory details. This is not like the Lord of the Rings. But first, verse 10 says, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The elders of Jabesh had received the messenger's report from Saul. They had heard that they would be delivered the next day, and so they deceived Nahash and the Ammonites by telling them that they will surrender. One more day, will surrender. And verse 11 says that the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the, height, uh, the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul attacked before dawn, sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. 
He divided his army into three companies, or probably divisions. If they were equally divided, that's 110,000 men per division. They surrounded the Ammonites who were surrounding Jabesh. They encircled the circle. And they struck them. The Ammonites, whose great strength had, been, had made them arrogant, were defeated so soundly that the soldiers who had not been killed could not find one another to attempt another attack. And we've noticed in the past, as we've been working our way through uh, 1 Samuel, the many connections that 1 Samuel has with the book of Judges, especially the last few chapters of the book of Judges. We've reflected numerous times on the phrase that is repeated throughout those last chapters and with which the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But there's another connection that up to this point hasn't been mentioned. Jabesh Gilead, some of you probably are already thinking along these lines. After the horrific crimes that are described in Judges chapter 19 that took place in the town of Gibeah, which was in the territory of Benjamin, the place where Saul lived, the place he was from, his city. All of the rest of Israel went to war against Benjamin. And they struck Benjamin. Chapter 20 describes that battle. They first met at Mitzpah, right at the beginning of chapter 20, to, to, to muster, to, to, to gather for battle. And Judges chapter 21 says that when the men of Israel had mustered at Mitzpah, before they went to war against Benjamin, they had taken an oath that none of them would allow their daughters to marry any man from the tribe of Benjamin. But after their defeat, after Benjamin, this tribe had been roundly and soundly defeated, it made it almost impossible for, for Benjamin to c continue on. Because so many of their people had been killed, so many of their men. The people remembered, however, that one city out of Israel did not send any men into battle against Benjamin, Jabesh Gilead, the tribe of East Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan River. And so we read in chapter 20, chapter 21, that, that, that Israel attacked Jabesh. Israel killed their men and their women. And they took 400 of their daughters to marry off to the men of the tribe of Benjamin. So they can keep Benjamin, this tribe, alive. Suffice it to say that at that point, at least, Jabesh and, uh, and Israel weren't exactly simpatico. They were not on friendly terms. But Israel's defense of Jabesh in 1 Samuel chapter 11, it resulted in the restoration of the relationship. And that brings us to point four, grace at Gilgal. After such a, divide, a decisive victory, the people of Israel were com completely united behind their new king. They were, as one man. But some of them remembered that there were men who withheld their support from Saul. And in verse 12, they say uh, to Saul, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. They want vengeance. They want to put these men down. And in response to this, Saul said in verse 13, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. And one commentator writes, In his wisdom, Saul does not even allow himself to be disturbed by the opponents of his kingship. He pardons them at the moment when he could have liquidated them with everybody's hearty approval. Saul understands Saul is no dummy. He's imperfect, but he understands that this is the moment to fully unite Israel. 
And to go after the men who opposed him becoming king would result in division. Instead of punishing these men, he is gracious toward them. They deserved punishment. They deserved to die for their treason against him. But Saul chose not to give them what they deserved. And this sets the stage for what takes place in the last two verses of chapter uh, chapter 11. Verse 14 says, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Our scripture reading from Joshua chapters 4 and 5, it reminded us of the significance of Gilgal. It was the place where Israel first stepped foot as a whole nation on the promised land. Oh yes, they'd sent spies into uh, the promised land. But as a nation, they, they, they had not entered. It was the place where Joshua set up those 12 stones of remembrance that had been taken out of the dry riverbed of the Jordan River when Israel crossed over into the promised land. Gilgal was the place where the new generation of Israelite males were circumcised. It was named Gilgal because of the circumcision of the males there. The reproach had been rolled away. The covenant was renewed after, uh, after decades of neglect. Gilgal was the place where Israel, on her way back into the promised land after the great first victory of her king at Jabesh-Gilead, would renew the kingdom. It was a fitting place. And so no doubt, though it's not described in 1 Samuel 11, no doubt the people were gathered around those 12 stones of remembrance, marking God's great deliverance of his people into the promised land. And verse 15 says, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before Yahweh in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before Yahweh. And there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now Saul had already been anointed as king. He had already been announced as king, proclaimed as king to the people. But he hadn't, in a sense, been enthroned or coronated as king. But he is here. There Saul was made king before Yahweh in Gilgal. Saul was a vastly imperfect man. As future chapters in 1 Samuel will demonstrate, as previous chapters have alluded. But in chapter 11, he is used by God as a sign. Saul points all Israel to what God can and will do for his people. It's not about Saul here. It's all about how God uses imperfect means, how God uses broken instruments in his hands to bring about his perfect plan. Saul is used by God as a type of Christ. And in so doing, as as God uses Saul this way, God brings salvation to his people and shows grace and mercy to his enemies. But it is clear despite all of Saul's imperfections, that a marked change has come over the king who was found hiding among the luggage. And that change is brought about by the Spirit of God who led his people to victory in battle. God showed that he alone is the true king of his people by taking an imperfect man and making him king, endowing Saul with his spirit and leading Saul into battle even as Saul led Israel. And the grace and the mercy that Saul showed to the men who had hated him was as undeserved as the grace and mercy that God has shown to you and to me. 
Despite our sins, despite our enmity with God, he has been gracious to us in Christ Jesus. Now Saul here in chapter 11, he is the picture of a perfect man. And all Israel celebrates this man. And even after Saul sins, there will be a strong contingent within Israel who will continue to support Saul. They will continue to go on. They won't see his flaws the way that others do. They're blind to his sinfulness and the terrible things that he does. It was the exact opposite with Christ Jesus. Here was a man who did nothing wrong, who never sinned because he was not merely a man. He was the God-man, God who came in the flesh. But he was regarded as an instigator. He was regarded as a usurper, as a troublemaker, as one who wanted to stir up problems for Israel. And so he was put to death like a criminal, when in reality he was the king. And Christ Jesus is the king. He remains the king. He sits enthroned, even now, at his Father's right hand, ruling over you and over me and over this world. It belongs to him. If Saul can present to us a picture of grace, a picture of victory, a picture of mercy, how much more can Christ Jesus who continues to reign victoriously over us and all of his enemies, who continues to show grace to us, and who is ever merciful. Brothers and sisters, it is Christ Jesus whom we worship. He was the anointed one. He is the anointed one. And he is the one to whom King Saul pointed with all of his imperfections. Christ Jesus is the one we worship and the one before whom we bow down. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the love that you show to us. We thank you for the ways in which you reign over us. You have brought us in, dear Lord. You've broken us of our rebellious ways and caused us to be your obedient children. And we are thankful. We thank you, Lord, for the picture of victory and grace and mercy that we have painted for us in 1 Samuel chapter 11. We thank you, dear Lord, that it so clearly does not point to a man, to this King Saul. But instead, O oh Lord, it points to you points to the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit you would cause us to worship you all our days. We pray, O Lord, that we would never again be rebellious against you, our King. And we pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.